This show is brought to you by our show's sponsor, BetterHelp Online Therapy. You don't need a reason to go to therapy. You can go to talk about a stressful week at work or to vent about a recent fight with your partner. No matter what the reason, BetterHelp is here for you. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and 21 and over listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash holly. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash holly. Hello and welcome back to another episode of 21 and over. So happy to have you back with us. This is sadly our final week, but we are covering a topic that will affect a lot of you heading back to school this fall, university safety. And to help discuss sexual assault, consent, and even more, we have the executive director of It's On Us, Tracy Vitches, who just last week was with US President Joe Biden. But as always, it's time for a check-in. Tali, welcome back. How are you today? And sad that it's our last um, mm. episode of the season. It's 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 weird to think that it's kind of come around so quick, and we've had so many amazing guests, and we've covered so many amazing topics. And um, it's a sadness actually that I feel right now. So I say that would be a low, but it's not the low of the week. Mm. <laughs> um, I would say uh, the high was getting to go away, getting to leave the, the UK. Um, it's been amazing just to kind of, you know, you think after 18 months and to get some sunshine. And other than that, you know, I, I think you know, things have been, it's lifted my mood basically. And I wouldn't say that I have a low other than the fact that I feel, you know, I'm, I'm reflective at the moment um, on this last season. But what about you, Holz? How, how have you been this week? It's been like a a bit of a weird feeling like knowing that this season is coming to an end because seven months ago, if you would have told me, you know, you would have just finished the season, I would have said that's Mm. not true. So it's kind of feel it's quite surreal. Um, Yeah. So I think that's kind of been the high of my week and kind of maybe the month. Um, And then (laughs) the low... The weather, <laughs> it keeps mm. raining and then sun and then rain and sun. So it's one of those where I just don't know what to wear. But that's a very kind of minor thing. <laughs> Our guest this week is the executive director of It's On Us and is a recognised expert on sexual violence prevention and survivor advocacy. As the executive director, she's worked with many politicians and businesses in the US to support survivors as well as prevent sexual assault with legislation and initiatives. We're so excited to have her as our guest this week, so please welcome Tracy Vitches. Hi Tracy, how are you? Hi Holly, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. I'm excited to have you on. Thank you for joining us today. Of course, thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled to chat with you. Now, as always, I do like to start with the check-in. So how have you been throughout the last year and handling the pandemic? The pandemic has been understandably stressful in many ways. Um, I do think, though, it in some ways has helped me personally to slow down a little bit. Um, Prior to the pandemic, I was on the road nonstop for work, which was wonderful because I was visiting college campuses, getting to see our students, um, traveling to Washington, D.C. Um, regularly to meet with our partners on the Hill. Um, I was in New York quite a bit, L.A., San Francisco. And then the world stopped. And so did I. <laughs> and and so it went from, you know, being on planes and trains and, and rental cars to just being home and working from home, um, which has been a nice, I think, personal break for myself. But we really had to pivot pretty quickly at It's On Us to moving into a realm of helping to support our students and particularly our student survivors throughout the pandemic who were dealing with a whole range of challenges from, 
you know, going from a lively campus community to suddenly having to go home and, and go into quarantine and isolation. And, you know, we work with so many different types of students from across the country at It's On Us. And a bulk of our student organizers come into this work because they are student survivors themselves. And for me, it was a priority to ensure that It's On Us continued to be a point of support for those student survivors because many of them were returning home and most of our students had not disclosed to their parents that they were survivors of sexual assault. And so they went home, had not shared this with their parents, and had lost, frankly, a lot of the support services that they had been receiving through their school and through their peers on campus. So we worked really hard to pivot and create a virtual community for our student survivors uh, throughout the first couple of months of the pandemic just to test case it and see how many students would sign on. And regularly on our just survivor check-ins, 250 students on a weekly basis were checking in. So I'm glad we were able to create that space for them. Um, But I also know they are very excited to return to campus this fall and keep working. (laughs) I bet because things online, it's so great that we have Zoom and all these resources we can use, but it's just not the same as being in person. It's not. It's not. I think a lot of our students just miss seeing their friends. It's it's been hard to just not be able to see their friends, which, you know, at that, at that point in your life, you're thinking, I'm going to college, I'm going to make friendships that are going to last a lifetime in some cases. And to be away from those types of relationships for a year plus can be really hard. Yeah, definitely very isolating as well. Now, would you mind explaining to our listeners kind of about It's On Us and how it came about? Absolutely. So It's On Us was founded in 2014 originally as a public awareness campaign of the Obama-Biden administration. But I like to think of It's On Us as roots going further beyond that. Um, For folks listening who uh, don't have a strong sense of President Biden's history on combating violence against women, um, he led the passage of the Violence Against Women Act in 1994, which in the United States was the first time ever in U.S. history that any kind of federal effort was taken to address the issue of sexual and domestic violence. It was the first time that the Office of Violence Against Women was established within the Department of Justice to specifically address issues of sexual and domestic violence. And during his time in the Senate, he worked diligently to ensure the Violence Against Women Act's reauthorization time and time again. And then when he entered the administration with President Obama in 2008, one of the things that was sort of a contingency of him joining that administration was he wanted to be able to continue to do his work to combat sexual and domestic violence. And one of the ways that they did that was they, for the first time ever, appointed a senior advisor on combating violence against women to the White House who directly reported to then Vice President Biden. And she was tasked at the time with doing a deep dive to understand what progress had or had not been made in reducing sexual violence and domestic violence within the United States. So that way, the administration could really determine how to focus their efforts and their energies. What were those areas that were being underserved um, or populations that were still at high risk? And as part of that 360 evaluation, as I like to call it, they determined that the population that had either seen no progress in reducing incidents of sexual violence or, depending on how you looked at that population, the issue had gotten worse, was with 16 to 24-year-olds in the United States. The question then became, well, why? Why are young people in the U.S. experiencing such high rates of sexual violence and dating violence? And They had a whole series of conversations with educators, students, experts, university officials, and they found that the issue of college sexual assault was a huge driver behind these incredibly high rates, that one in five young women were graduating college having experienced sexual assault during their four years on campus. And the other thing that they found as part of this deep dive was not only these very high incidence rates, but really little to no effort on true sexual violence prevention education. In talking to students and schools, what the White House at that time found was 
schools were saying, well, we are doing sexual assault prevention, but what they were actually teaching was sexual assault or rape avoidance. So they were telling girls on campus, watch your drink, don't wear those kinds of clothes, don't walk home alone at night, rather than talking to the entire campus community and particularly young men about what does consent mean? What does it mean if someone can't consent? Under what circumstances do you need to maybe step in and say or do something if you see someone who could end up in a position to commit sexual assault and have that true prevention education conversation? So It's On Us was launched then in 2014 as a result of all of that work to really make that change and to call entire campus communities, but particularly young men, into the conversation of college sexual assault prevention. And how do we create real, true social and cultural change on college campuses towards one that treats sexual violence as something that is and should be avoided and prevented, as opposed to a risk management issue on the back end where it's just, okay, well, we have great survivor support services. What more do you want us to do? Because that's really what the approach was at that time. It was not prevention focused. It was truly just focused on Sexual assault is a thing that happens. All we can do is support survivors afterwards when, yes, survivors need every ounce of support and every service that they can get. But fundamentally, I want to live in a world, and I believe President Biden wants to live in a world where no student graduates college having experienced sexual assault during their time on campus. And that's really where It's On Us comes from. Wow, what a story. And I think it's so important kind of including the young men in the conversation as well, rather than just saying to girls, you know, don't wear this, watch your drink, don't leave your drink alone. Um, And such, yeah, very important values that's formed this amazing organization. So when did you join It's On Us? I came onto the It's On Us team in 2017. At that point in time, It's On Us had been spun out of the Obama-Biden administration The decision was made to take projects like It's On Us um, and others, such as um, our sister project, uh, the United State of Women, and put us under one nonprofit organization called Civic Nation. And I was brought on board to run It's On Us following that transition and really figure out, okay, we've created this amazing public awareness campaign. We're seeing schools and students really mobilize under the banner of It's On Us and their college campuses. And now what? What's the next stage of growth? And so we've really been focused on that next stage of growth uh, during the last four years. Since joining the Civic Nation, how has it kind of evolved and become what it is today? So when I came on board, we had this sort of loosely organized national chapter network. A lot of schools loved It's On Us and students really loved It's On Us and its message of prevention and started to have student groups form. And so the first task that I I took on when I came on board was how do we, A, figure out where all of these schools, which schools are doing this work, what students are doing this work on campus, how do we find out what they're doing under the banner of It's On Us and create really a formal structure for them to engage with us. So That was when the chapter network was first established, was in 2017. We put in a really strong effort to identify those campuses that were working with It's On Us in some capacity, understand how they were functioning on campus, what kind of activities they were doing. Um, And then we also developed from there uh, sort of a pathway for student leadership escalation. So... um, Students would need to either apply to start a new chapter on their campus if one didn't exist, or the organizers and you know the chapter presidents needed to make sure that they were registering with us on an annual basis so we could keep in touch with them. Um, and we used that as a pipeline to identify students who were really committed to working on this issue and gave them leadership development skills that then allowed them to step into a higher level of work with us, which is called our regional advisor cohort. And those are students who either oversee schools within a specific geographic region in the U.S. that have chapters and support them in implementing their work. Or we have regional advisors who focus on specific types of school or student communities. So 
for example, we have a regional advisor that works specifically with historically black colleges and universities across the United States to make sure that the prevention education programs that it's on us as providing are relevant to their campus community and culture. So we really formalized that network, um, really started to expand that network. We went from 100 schools to 300 over the course of the last four years. Um, we also began creating our own in-house, free-to-use-by-our-students prevention education modules. So we started with three core prevention education programs focused on sexual assault awareness and consent education, active bystander intervention, and survivor support. And then um, we actually ended up, as part of those conversations, identifying that there was a massive gap in a couple, like massive gaps in some of the prevention education that students were receiving from their school. Um, and one of those huge areas was actually online dating violence prevention. So schools weren't really talking to college kids about, well, how do you safely use online dating apps? How do you safely meet up with people that you've met online? And so we were very lucky. Um, we were in, we established a partnership with Tinder. And at the time, I remember they, the Tinder staff told me 94% of college students will use Tinder at some point during their four years on campus. Mm -hmm. So this was clearly an app that was me that a lot of college students were using. And they also wanted to help us help students use it safely. So we created our online dating program with them and rolled that out. And then this summer, we added two more prevention trainings to what we call our core prevention programs. Um, and we partnered with YSL Beauty to develop them. And they are focused on dating violence awareness and prevention. Um, one of the topics that we had identified over time that, again, schools were not addressing was this issue of dating violence. Um, because a lot of times schools think about sexual assault as happening in this vacuum of stranger danger types of sexual assault when we know 85% of students who experience sexual assault on college know their perpetrator in some way. And many students are becoming victimized through acts of dating violence. And we saw heightened dating violence occur during the COVID-19 pandemic as well. So we were really, really focused on making sure that we were providing students with prevention education on dating violence prevention. So, Tracy, you were talking about um, dating apps, and I just wondered how any piece of advice you could give listeners on how to keep themselves safe. You know, obviously, we've seen an increase in the usage of dating apps over the, during the pandemic. So any advice or any sort of ideas around how to keep yourself safe when, when you're using an app? That's a really great question. So we've been partnering quite a bit with Tinder over the last few years to address issues of dating app safety and awareness. And what we've been able to work with them on is A, an educational program that focuses on dating app violence prevention, but B, we've been able to talk with them quite a bit about what kind of services can the app provide to users. Um, so what I would really encourage anyone who's using a dating app to do is to look at what are the safety features and safety services that are provided through the app Every app is a little bit different, but some have options that if you're out meeting somebody for the first time that you can share your location with a friend or a family member and give them the heads up before you go out and say, hey, I'm going out on my Tinder date tonight with a guy I've never met. Hey, roommate, do you mind if I share my location with you? And if I'm not home by 11 p.m., can you call me and just check in? And I think just letting somebody else know that you're going out on a date and sharing your location with them, I think is a good first step. Um, I also think it's really important before you meet up with someone that you have the opportunity to not just message with them through the app, but speak to them on the phone, ask them for a FaceTime conversation, if that's possible, just to make sure that, you know, this person is the person that they say they are and that you feel comfortable meeting up with them. Um, you know, some folks are, you know, better at a face-to-face -face conversation, but I still think as a first, you know, meet, but I think, you know, we have this wonderful technology, let's use it, let's create space to do 
whether it's FaceTime calls or other kinds of Google Hangouts or Zoom calls with somebody before you meet up with them. I think that's also really important. And I do think it's also really critical that before you go out with anyone to really have a conversation about, okay, we're going out. This is the first time we're meeting up. These are the things I'm okay with and not okay with doing. And even if you, again, use it, use COVID as your excuse, right? If you sit there and you're like, I know you're vaxxed, I'm vaxxed, but I'm a little concerned about this Delta variant. So I would really prefer if we do go out that you don't try and kiss me without asking first, like just set those boundaries on the front end. And if somebody balks at you wanting to set those boundaries, that's a sign that maybe you should not go out with that person because if they don't respect that desire for you to just like check in and ask if it's okay for me to touch you or hug you because of a very serious pandemic issue that we're having, um, I think that that's a bit of a flag and that you should then be able to feel comfortable saying, hey, you know what? It was nice talking to you, but at the end of the day, I don't think that this is going to work out. Um, and and also too, if you are on a dating app and somebody, even if you haven't met up with them, but you feel like someone is being harassing or is pushing or pressuring you to meet up before you're ready or sending you messages that are inappropriate, most of the apps have ways to report those users. And I don't think that you should ever be afraid to report somebody to the app if you feel like their contact with you has been inappropriate or harmful. Um, the apps have a great, most of the apps now have great protocols for investigating who that person is and flagging them. And, and if they have to, they do shut down that account if that person may be a threat to other people. So really look into the, what those reporting options are through some of the dating apps if you are experiencing some kind of harassment through it. And I think maybe it's worth clarifying the terms um, sexual violence, sexual assault, rape, and sexual harassment, because I think a lot of the times people kind of associate them all with the same thing. So if you wouldn't mind just giving a brief kind of explanation of each. If you've never gone to therapy, you might wonder what people get out of talking to a stranger once a week. Honestly, a lot. Talking to an unbiased person about your experiences is really helpful. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and 21 Noble listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash holly. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Holly. Absolutely. So at It's On Us, we think of sexual violence as an umbrella term. So the term that is broadly used to describe a variety of acts of sexual violence that occur on a spectrum of violence. Um, Sexual harassment we see is sort of the one end of the spectrum where it's inappropriate and harassing comments, text messages, social media messages, et cetera. Um, you know, a, a guy in your econ class making a, an unacceptable sexually harassing joke at you because of something that you're wearing, for example. Um, then we think of sexual assault as any non-consensual sexual touching or other kinds of acts. So for example, a guy comes up to you and without your consent kisses you at a party. Um, and we define rape as any non-consensual sexual penetration. Um, and we keep it broadly that way because we do want to be inclusive of acts of rape that occur within the LGBTQ community as well. 
Um, so we don't just ascribe it to vaginal penetration. We keep it broad in that sense. Um, but we really see violence occurring on a spectrum. And we often see in the campus environment in particular that you have a student who starts off perpetrating an act of sexual harassment and no one stops them. And then they escalate and they escalate and they escalate. And, and, and we've, and the best available data in the U S shows that over 90% of the incidents of campus sexual assault that occur are committed by only 6% of the male student population. And they're repeat offenders who engage in these ongoing and escalating acts of violence because no one stops them and no one holds them accountable. And so for us, it's really important that we have these conversations about prevention and educate all students on what does sexual violence look like? What are the various forms that it can take? So that way they are able to identify it if they see that it is happening or could happen and intervene to stop it. And I know it's difficult to name one exact place, but, you know, obviously this does happen. Is there, whether it's more common on a night out or in the dorms, would you say that there is a more common occurrence of place? So what we have found is that it really is dependent on the campus community where incidents of sexual assault are more likely to occur. So, you know, in the U.S., some schools have Greek life and fraternities and sororities, and some don't. The school sizes vary. You have small liberal arts colleges with 2,000 students in a highly residential campus community to massive state university systems like Penn State, where you have 40,000 students at their main campus alone. (laughs) And, And so the cultures on each of these campuses are very different. Um... I do know that there have been some efforts from some schools that we've worked with or are aware of to try to map where incidents of sexual assault are more likely to occur. Um, And there was one school in particular that we spoke with who did this really interesting exercise where they brought students in and they handed them a map of campus. And they said on a Saturday night, can you use green, yellow, and red stickers to identify places where you feel safe, less safe, or not safe. And then they used that mapping exercise to identify those places on campus that students did not feel safe. And they sort of narrowed it down. And then they held additional conversations with the students to figure out, well, why at this dorm do you feel less safe, but you feel safe at others? Why in this student gathering space do you feel more or less safe? Um, And what they ended up finding out was fascinating that there were actually environmental or structural issues to those locations on campus that made students feel more or less safe at them. And one of the really fascinating outcomes was that in the majority of the places where students felt less safe, the electrical and lighting systems had not been upgraded. So In the common areas in those dorms, for example, the lights were on a switch where they were either on or they were off. Whereas in in those areas, students felt less safe because if there were parties happening in those common areas, typically the lights were off. It was dark. The music was loud. You couldn't really see who was around you. um, And it left students more vulnerable to non-consensual acts of sexual touching, somebody coming up behind them and grabbing them on the dance floor or rubbing up against them and not knowing who this person is because it's dark and they can't see and it's loud Um, versus in dorms where there were dimmer switches on the lights, students could control the level of lighting. And often the lights were left on at those parties just enough where you could see who was around you. Mm. And so it meant that students who were looking to perpetrate that type of sexual assault were less likely to go to parties in that space because their potential victims could see them. And so the school said, well, an easy solution to this is let's just upgrade all of the electrical and all of these common spaces to dimmer switches. And now they're really trying to investigate, like, does that make a difference? And and they were hoping to do that investigation over the last year, but then COVID mm-hmm. happened. And so 
no social gatherings are happening on campus, but I'm really interested to see what happens or what changes moving forward in those spaces mm-hmm. at that school in particular, um, where there's those environmental factors. And, you know, and we run into this challenge also with schools that have um, a lot of off-campus housing where students reside um, because schools have less control over those off-campus residential locations. Um, and we know 85% of college students in the U.S. live off-campus at some point during their college career. It's very rare for a college student to live in a dorm all four years um, on campus. So we know that those off-campus living arrangements are often a challenge for schools and a challenge for students because there's not really security typically. There's no one screening who's coming in and out. Um, That makes it harder. And then again, if you're in a more urban area or there's more of a, you know, college downtown that's heavily populated with bars and clubs, that's a completely other environment that this issue has to be tackled in. And we've seen schools get creative where they work with the local bars and clubs to make sure that those staff and particularly the bouncers are educated or the bartenders are educated, um, but they can't cover everything. And so that's why it's really important um, to it's on us that we have this focus on ongoing prevention education to keep students aware that this is an ongoing issue. And it's not just something that happens on your campus amongst your peers. It can also happen off campus amongst your peers. Yeah, I think it's so encouraging that the schools are, you know, willing to change all of the lights in their dorms and kind of talk to the bouncers at the bars and clubs. And it must be encouraging for you guys as well that people are actually willing to work with you because at the end of the day, everyone just wants everyone to be safe and have a good college experience. Absolutely. And, you know, we've been very lucky at It's On Us in that the colleges and universities where we've had chapters established really support the mission of It's On Us and really like that it's a it's it's flipping the script. It's not treating sexual violence as this inevitable thing that happens to one in five women as part of their college experience. It's reframing the conversation to one of true community accountability for prevention Mm. and, and empowering students to know what sexual assault looks like and empowering them with the skills to step in and stop it from happening. Um, And we hear quite a bit from the young men that we work with that they like the it's on us model because so many other prevention education models that do exist can be pretty blamey to the bulk of guys when we know that the majority of young men are not going to commit an act of sexual violence during their four years. But if the conversation is is framed to them as, well, we're just looking at you as a potential perpetrator rather than a potential active bystander who can step in and stop something from happening, um, it can really shut them down and make them disengage and make them feel like they can't be a part of the conversation or that they don't see themselves as part of the solution to this problem because they sit back and they say, well, I'm not going to sexually assault anyone. Why are you telling me this? When what they need to be being told is, we're having this conversation with you, not because we think you're going to sexually assault someone, but because you might know someone who will. And you need to know what that looks like and how you can step in and stop it from happening. Yeah, and keep them included. So obviously I'm in the UK, but I know going to university is a very much universal experience for everyone. And I think this year it's going to be interesting because we've all been at home, locked down. Um, You know, these young people are going to be away from their parents. They're going to be surrounded by alcohol for maybe the first time or kind of the first time in a while. And how do you think that going back to school this year is going to be different for not just the universities themselves, but also students? It's going to be a completely new world for universities and college students when they return to campus this fall. Um, You know, I think globally, we've been having this conversation of schools are reopening. Many schools are requiring students to have proof of vaccination if they're going to return to in-person learning. Um, And a lot of the conversation is around COVID-19 safety with schools reopening. And, And it's understandable why that is. Schools do need to be open in a in a way that is safe for students from the COVID-19 pandemic. We want to stop the spread and we want to continue to flatten the curve on this issue. 
And also one of the things that schools need to be aware of is just that point that you made where students have been away from school in some cases for a year to a year and a half. And, you know, that has created a new challenge and also a new opportunity, I would say, for schools to address this issue of campus sexual assault head on. Um, In the U.S., we consider basically the time period from the first day freshmen or first-year students arrive on campus for move-in until the day that all of the students depart for Thanksgiving break as the red zone on college campuses. And it's called the red zone because it's the time when more than 50% of all sexual assaults that will occur during the year happen. And during that period, historically, first-year women and transfer students are those who have been most vulnerable to sexual assault during the red zone. Um, And those populations tend to be more vulnerable because they're new to campus and therefore they don't really know the campus social life as well. Um, They don't have really an established tight social circle who is there to watch out for them and make sure that they're safe when they go out. Um, For many students, it's the first time that they might engage in drinking or heavy drug use, particularly in the U.S. We have a a massive issue with binge drinking with first-year college students. Um, It's the first time that they're away from home from their parents in most cases. In the U.S., the legal drinking age is still 21. And so you'll have students who will drink really heavily in the privacy of their own dorm room and then go out. And in that case, they're often close to being blackout drunk in some cases when they do go out, which is really unsafe. And then they're drinking as quickly as they can when they are out because they're afraid they might get cut off or stopped or found to be underage. Um, It's also the time when a lot of back-to-campus parties are happening. Students have returned from summer break during this period. You know, this time it's going to be a year and a half from COVID. Um, And it's also the time where Greek life rush events happen that leads to a lot of parties on campus in the U.S. And what we're really concerned about this year is, you know, the majority of U.S. college students and U.K. college students have spent the last year to year and a half of their academic careers either in a completely virtual learning environment, not on campus, most likely home with their parents or other family members, Or if they have been on campus for whatever reason, it's been in a socially distanced educational environment where schools have very strict rules around where you can and can't go, the size of student gatherings, et cetera, that have decreased the opportunity for partying to occur. Um, So we know that we've had this gap year, essentially. And we also know that universities were really overwhelmed by managing the COVID-19 crisis, and they just didn't have the capacity to invest as strongly as they did in previous years in sexual assault prevention education because their focus was how do we transition students and educators to remote or socially distanced learning environments over the last year and a half. And so, you know, we have this concern of, yes, We know freshmen and transfer students are already particularly vulnerable. And we have a group of students who are coming to campus this year who are academically second-year sophomore students. But because of COVID-19, they're actually socially and culturally first-year freshman students. They haven't had that traditional freshman year college experience. They've, again spent their freshman year taking general education classes over Zoom from their childhood bedroom. Or, you know, if they were on campus, typically in the U.S., students were brought back because they were on sports teams and they were those still Zooming in from their dorm rooms or they were there because they were science majors and needed to take lab classes. Um, So even if students, you know, we have this class of sophomores who even though they're academically second year, they're technically first year students socially on campus. They haven't had that traditional experience. So we're really concerned this year about the fact that we have this threat of a double red zone of two classes of students who are now exceptionally at risk for being sexually assaulted because they are unfamiliar with the campus community. And that is combined, right, with the fact that we're going to have upper-class students who are in their third and fourth years coming back to campus, in some cases, again, for the first time in a year plus, who want to make up for lost time. 
And we see the potential for heightened levels of partying, heightened levels of binge drinking. We also know that we saw, at least in the U.S., um, rates of alcohol use just with the college student population decrease over the last year because they were home with their parents and they couldn't get access to alcohol or they weren't like, you're not going to get blackout drunk in front of your mom. Like that's nope. not something <laughs> that you're going to do. Um, and so, you know, we know that there is this situation that's going to arise where we're going to have juniors and seniors returning to campus, wanting to return to normal, make up for lost time, party, 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 and then have these other two classes of students who are younger who are completely inexperienced with campus social life. And that could become what we're calling the double red zone this fall with even higher rates of sexual assault occurring the back during, during the back-to-campus period with first-year and second-year students in particular being affected. Um, so we've really been trying to sound the alarm on this, and, and we've been encouraging our students who are part of It's On Us to really reach out to their schools, whether it's their director of sexual assault prevention, dean, head of student government, somebody who works in residential life, et cetera, to try to understand what the campus is going to do around sexual assault prevention education when students do come back and how are they preparing for this heightened risk of having even more students experiencing sexual assault during the fall than ever before? And how are they ramping up survivor support services as a result? Wow. And can you give our listeners some insight into the importance of consent, especially going back into, you know, this kind of new strange environment for a lot of them? It's going to be a challenge. And, and, you know, we've really been thinking about this idea of consent with the return of students to campus after quarantine as as a particularly sticky conversation, um, because we we know that for the last year and a half, the rule has been, don't go within six feet of anyone. So I think in some cases, students are actually primed for some of these conversations around consent and not touching people, right? We've spent the last year and a half not touching people. <laughs> mm-hmm. we just, you know, and so... Um, so I think that it does provide a unique opportunity for us to have conversations about consent and and asking, you know, before you touch anyone, are you okay with me hugging you? Are you okay with me coming within six feet of you? Because you don't know what folks' level of comfort is with COVID to begin with. And then you add in the layer of sexual violence prevention and awareness. And so... For us, we're really trying to drive home this conversation around, look, we have the opportunity now to create a new positive normal on college campuses where we've all learned this practice of social distancing over the last year to year and a half and being cognizant of other people's space and other people's bodily autonomy So how do we apply that to lessons about consent? How do we use that as a jumping off point to say, look, you know, we've, because of COVID-19, we've spent the last, you know, year social distancing, not touching other people, not coming into their bubbles without asking for permission first. We need to continue to do that. Also from the perspective of sexual violence prevention. And are you okay if I hug you? Are you okay if I kiss you? Is this okay with you? Do you want to do this? Do you not want to do that? You know, we also, I think, are concerned about making sure that students come back to campus and and have these conversations from that proactive, what are we all doing to ensure that everyone is staying safe, not just from COVID-19, but from sexual assault? And how are we creating a community of accountability where everyone's boundaries and bodily autonomy is respected, not just with COVID, but also with sexual violence prevention. Now, we've seen an increase in awareness of sexual violence thanks to Me Too, various news stories and documentaries. But I think a lot of people are still unsure how to support someone who may be a victim. What advice would you give them? My number one piece of advice is give them the space and the trust to share their story with you. And I think the best thing that we can do, that anyone can do, when someone reaches out and discloses 
that they've been sexually assaulted or raped is to listen and to say, I believe you. And what can I do to support you? Because support looks different for everyone. Someone may say support for me looks like we get brunch once a week and you just do a mental health check-in with me to make sure I'm doing okay while we have brunch. It could be, I want to report this to my school. Can you help me figure out how to do that? It might be, I just need some time and space alone. I don't really want to see anyone right now, but do you mind just texting me every couple of days to check in? And really letting a survivor know I'm here for you. I believe you and allow them to really self-direct what that support looks like is critical. Because when someone experiences sexual violence, that sense of autonomy can really be taken away from a survivor. That sense of control over one's body and one's environment can really be stripped of them in such a horrible way. And by saying to a survivor, I believe you, you're affirming that what happened to them matters and that you believe them and that you are there to help them and saying to them, what can I do to support you? Gives them that opportunity to take some of that autonomy and control back because it allows them to self-direct what happens next. And I always say too, don't pressure a survivor to take action of any kind until they're ready. Because you don't, again, want to pressure somebody into doing something that maybe they're not ready for and might never be ready for. Some survivors never report their assailant to any kind of authority. Some just want to, you know, take the space to heal on their own terms and not have to go through a legal process or a school misconduct process. Others do want to do that, but they really need to know that whatever choices that they are making are their own and that it's self-directed and that they have the support to do what is best for them. I think that's such a key message that support looks different for everyone. I definitely like the way you put that. Um, Now, normally I ask guests kind of what piece of advice would they give their 21-year-old self? However, what piece of advice would you give anyone, any age, going back to school and into that environment that is very kind of unfamiliar at the moment? I think the best advice I can give to any student heading back to campus this year is to really take the time when you head back to campus, whether you're going back for the, because you're an upper class student, or if you're heading off to college for the first time, to really take a minute and say, what do I want this next year of my life to look like? And how can I make sure that I and my classmates are having a year that is safe and that is supportive, not just from the perspective of the COVID-19 pandemic, but from the perspective of sexual assault prevention and from one's own mental health support. You know, the pandemic has taken such a toll on young people's mental health, everyone's mental health, but young people in particular. And I think it's really important just to take a step back and say, okay, we've had this year away. What do I want to reemerge into the world doing as who I am? What are my priorities and how do I want to achieve them? And how do I make sure that everybody is around me is set up for the same success as I set myself up for? Well, Tracy, thank you so much for speaking to us today. I think it was a, it's been a very important conversation. So thank you. Yeah, Holly, thank you so much for having me on. It's such wonderful work that you're doing here and creating this space for young people and people of all ages to to think about some of these really critical issues, particularly related to mental health. Well, exactly the same back to you. <laughs> thank you, Tracy. Really, really great to hear you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that conversation with Tracy, you know, a lot of the stuff she said was so insightful 
from kind of how support looks different for everyone to kind of the different forms of consent. I think it was such an important conversation. Absolutely. And I think what was really interesting as well is is tying in the idea of consent, you know, now that we've also just been through a pandemic and also what she was saying about the dating apps and setting your boundaries. I really enjoyed all that she was saying and it was really informative. 100%. I think the way she kind of presented some of these topics, she's made them kind of inclusive in the terms of like the language she uses and the way It's On Us works, kind of including everyone within the conversation and not just the typical kind of old-fashioned, don't wear this, don't go to this place when it's dark, you know. Mm. She's really kind of made it very modern and quite a difficult topic, very understandable. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to 21 and Over and a huge thank you to Tracy for being our guest today. I hope you all learned a little bit more. I know I definitely did. Please don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts to get updated on our next season. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We're at 21 and Over with Holly, where I'll be posting updates. And if you'd like to send us a note, you can send us a DM. Special thanks this season to Tally, my co-host. I definitely could not have done this season without you by my side. And even bigger thank you to our listeners for listening to me and for your support and tuning in every week. I'm truly very grateful. Another big thank you to Cloud10 and a huge thank you to Studio Ramsey for all your support as well. And lastly, the biggest thank you to my family, my siblings and my parents. Thank you for not giving up on me and for telling me anything is possible. All I had to do was believe. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.